In 2017, North Korea shocked the world. Flying a missile capable of reaching the US, exploding the most powerful nuclear device tested anywhere in a quarter century, and declaring its nuclear deterrence complete. Today, Kim Jong-un's growing nuclear stockpile represents a grave threat to international security. But these weapons mean more to him than world glory. Kim is determined to keep ruling, and he sees his nuclear weapons as the key to regime survival. Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Tom Plant, Director of Proliferation and Nuclear Policy at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute in London, and I'm here today talking with Ankit Panda, an award-winning writer, international security expert, and friend and collaborator. In his book, Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, Ankit tells the extraordinary story of how a small, poor country became a nuclear power and why we'll have to live with it. In today's show, we'll be discussing the history of nuclear weapons in North Korea, why the program's so important to Kim Jong-un, and what a nuclear-armed North Korea means for the world. Now, Anki, it's a delight to see you here today. I've really enjoyed reading through the book. I've had it a little while now, read through it a couple of times. And I'm really struck by what you've attempted to do with it and capture really the frenzy of activity in the last sort of five years in particular, but the degree of the forensic degree you go into the the prior history, as it were, where we got to this point. And also, really, I think some interesting commentary on the international media and diplomatic characterization of North Korea, which I think we'll probably go on to talk to a bit more. So, yeah, it's a delight to be talking to you again about this. So perhaps we might want to start with, well, the first thing, I mean, you write about this a little bit in, in the book, but, you know, what led you to be interested in this issue in particular? And maybe if you could describe a little bit your, um, your exposure to it over the last few years. Sure. Uh, so first of all, Tom, it's good to be here with you. Originally, when I came to working on North Korea, I was a journalist. And I remember in late 2013 here in New York City, I remember very vividly canceling dinner plans when Kim Jong-un killed his uncle, Jang Song-tek. And I was a reporter at the time. I was working on Asia-Pacific security issues. Uh, and uh, North Korea was part of my coverage remit. I remember at that time really going and so, hmm, this could be the start of something significant. And uh you know, lo and behold, uh, in the ensuing years, uh, North Korea really became the overwhelming focus of a lot of the work I was doing, uh, not just as a journalist and reporter, but also on the policy side. I sort of straddled the world of journalism and think tanks for a while now. So that's the short version of the origin story. The longer version, I think, goes back to a more general long-term interest in nuclear policy issues. Uh, I'm an American citizen today, but actually, I was born in India in the late 1990s, I was actually uh, in India when India broke out as a nuclear weapons state. And I remember having a, an early interest in uh, what nuclear weapons meant for international security and for national security of the states that chose to acquire them. And that's sort of been a an enduring interest for some time. So given the work that I was doing on North Korea uh, in the years after 2013, I began to amass just so much information, uh, information in many cases that hadn't been published elsewhere that then lent itself rather logically uh, to a book covering the Kim Jong-un era. And there are certain things that I think make the Kim Jong-un era particularly significant. If we look at his father, Kim Jong-il, who died in December 2011, for the duration of his lifespan and his rule of North Korea between uh, mid-1994 and December 2011, North Korea was still talked about as a non-proliferation problem, that this was a nuclear program that was to be contained and rolled back. And under Kim Jong-un, and especially in 2017, Tom, as you said in your introduction, we really just saw the qualitative and quantitative scope of this nuclear program just really 
explode in so many ways. And today, the scope of uh, the North Korean nuclear program is such that I'd argue, and I make the case in the book, that this is far beyond a non-proliferation problem. It presents problems of uh, deterrence, disarmament, and yes, a non-proliferation in some ways, but it's just a completely different sort of issue uh, than uh, we've grown used to. One of the things I think it would be helpful to do, if you just, as you sketch out in the book, I mean, you've said, you've talked about the history a little bit there, going back to Kim Il-sung, and, and I think some people would probably argue it goes, you know, even before that to sort of senses of Korean identity, as it were. But perhaps for the listeners, maybe you'd like to outline a little bit about the history of North Korea's nuclear development and to the more recent times. I mean, I know that you've broken a number of key stories on it, but perhaps one or two that stick out for you in more recent times. So, you know, the United States not only tested the world's first nuclear weapon on uh, July 16th, 1945, but used nuclear weapons twice against Japan in 1945. And that meant that not only Kim Il-sung, but a range of world leaders in the late 1940s and even into the 1950s pondered what these weapons meant, uh, whether they revolutionized warfare, whether these were essential components of future defense strategies in these countries, and and Kim Il-sung was certainly among them. And the earliest evidence we see of North Korea's interest in atomic technology really comes during the Korean War when the country sets up the Atomic Energy Research Institute domestically. But really, we don't get to a sense that North Korea is actively seeking nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them, at least until the early 1960s. Uh, And there's a fascinating uh, Kim Il-sung address shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, in which he reflects on not only the value of nuclear weapons, the potential danger they present to world affairs, but also reflecting on Cuba's experience, relying on the Soviet Union as a patron. And there's this theme throughout history of North Korea as a self-reliant state. The actual infrastructure of nuclear fuel production in North Korea, um, there was an initial attempt at setting up a Soviet-provided research reactor uh, by the 1970s. This allowed North Korean atomic scientists to experiment with things like isotope separation uh, that are important components of ultimately developing a nuclear weapon. This wasn't the end-all be-all of the North Korean program, primarily because the North Koreans were reliant on the Soviet Union for a fuel that actually would have allowed them to operate this research reactor. In, in the 1980s, uh, 1986, uh, the North Koreans start operations at the uh, Yongbyon 5-megawatt electric gas graphite nuclear reactor. That's the currently only operating reactor in the country, and that's really been the focus of many of our previous attempts at treating North Korea as a non-proliferation problem. Uh, the 1994 agreement between the United States and North Korea, the agreed framework, agreed by the Clinton administration uh, right as Kim Il-sung actually uh, died that very same year froze North Korea's activities at that reactor and other related facilities at the Yongbyon complex. Fast forward to 2002, October 2002 specifically, Bush administration is now in office. Republican administration replaces the outgoing Clinton administration in 2001. And the Bush administration alleges that North Korea had been hedging the agreed framework in many ways by acquiring the components to set up an indigenous uranium enrichment capability. And I I talk about this in the book, too. The North Koreans had a little help from a certain Pakistani gentleman known as A.Q. Khan, who really, to this day, is the most notorious individual for his activities on the nuclear black market, allowing not only North Korea, but a few other countries to acquire the capabilities to begin pursuing uranium enrichment. Of those customers that A.Q. Khan did have, however, North Korea got the furthest, making full use of its uranium enrichment capability. And finally, under Kim Jong-un, we get to a point where not only did North Korea conduct additional nuclear tests, uh, under Kim Jong-un we've seen four nuclear tests, including the tests of 
nuclear bomb designs that were standardized, intended for mass production, and a larger thermonuclear bomb. Uh, but also Kim Jong-un uh, finally crossed major milestones when it came to delivery systems. And that's really where the essential ingredients of a nuclear deterrent are uh, to be found. For instance, under Kim Jong-il, we never really talked about deterrence with North Korea because uh, we'd seen uh, just two nuclear tests. Uh, we'd seen the testing of fairly rudimentary delivery systems that primarily were limited by their range uh, at the time and, and used fairly rudimentary rocket propellant types as well. I'm going to talk a little bit about the importance of rocket propellants uh, for the performance of specific missile types uh, in the book. Uh, but really under Kim Jong-un, uh, we see a lot of that work carried forward and advanced qualitatively to the point where Yes, we still might describe North Korea's deterrent as rudimentary, but it is something that we need to take seriously today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, many seem to suggest that the Kim Jong-il era was one perhaps where Kim Jong-il hadn't quite decided whether, you know, his nuclear program was for extracting concessions through, you know, trading bits away, or whether it ultimately was for deterrence, or whether he hadn't really made up his mind and sort of oscillated between them. Whereas, as you assert, and I think I, I would agree, North Korea's in recent years and under Kim Jong-un very much sees nuclear weapons as sort of integral to identity. I mean, it's being woven into the identity, if you like, of the country now. But that second point around Kim Jong-il is, I think, an interesting one because it gets us onto sort of preconceptions about North Korea. It gets us onto biases in, in understanding North Korea, which is, for those who, who look at North Korean issues very closely, we're constantly beset by in popular culture. So I wonder what you think about that, that idea that Kim Jong-il, you know, hadn't quite perhaps decided to go fully down the, you know, we're definitely going to commit to this, diplomatic processes are just about stalling for time, and actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a survivable deterrent. Or as some say, you know, it was at that point at least for trading, and then Kim Jong-un sort of makes a bit of a change. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I don't think there's a categorical answer. I think, you know, sometimes the most interesting issues are the ones that don't have a categorical answer. But I talked a little bit about the collapse of the agreed framework in October 2002. Uh, but if you look at the period between, let's say, October 2002 and the end of 2003, it's a fascinating period in, in U.S.-North Korea relations, uh, not only because the agreed framework collapses, but in early 2003, North Korea becomes the first country to effectuate its withdrawal from the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, which Kim Il-sung had signed in 1985 under Soviet pressure. And of course, at the time Kim Il-sung signed that treaty, uh, he perhaps was unaware that the Soviet Union would not exist in a few short years. Um, <laughs> and that may have been one of the greatest strategic mistakes North Korea made in many ways. Uh, in fact, I think... Do you think so? That's interesting. Maybe we could come back to that. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, strategic mistakes... It's it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just in terms of if you look at how uh, the world has coped with the nuclear breakout of states that never signed the NPT to begin with, uh, India, uh, Pakistan, and Israel being in the, in the first place. And North mm. Korea, for instance, at the scope of available policy reactions that we have to North Korea, a lot of that is influenced by not setting bad examples for uh, other potential proliferators. And certainly uh, other states that are party to the NPT today do abide their uh, non-proliferation obligations in good standing. But anyways, uh, going back to uh, early 2003, at least, what happens in March 2003? The Bush administration invades Iraq. And if we look at events that are happening contemporaneously in North Korea as the first bombs begin to fall on Baghdad, it's a fascinating period. Uh, Kim Jong-il, first of all, disappears for a matter of months, which is not unusual for a North Korean leader in general. Uh, but Kim Jong-il was in many ways deeply paranoid. Uh, his personality actually stands out from both 
his father Kim Il Sung and his son Kim Jong Un. Um, for instance, he he's an introvert. He's sort of chronically paranoid that the United States is seeking to remove him from power. And after uh, he reemerges, we begin to see the North Korean government talk about nuclear weapons in in a way that implies that they are seeking to actually pursue a real physical deterrent. And this period, I think, captures perhaps a transformation in how uh, Kim Jong-il, at least, thought about the capabilities that he had amassed at that time. Uh, This eventually leads into the beginning of the six-party talks process, uh, which convenes in China with the participation of uh, the United States, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, and Russia, all countries uh, comprising the six parties. But by 2006, when North Korea tests its first nuclear device, uh, there is the sense that uh, North Korea under Kim Jong-il is trying to hedge against the possibility that the North Korean gambit might not succeed in actually procuring a reliable and successful nuclear deterrent. Ultimately, I think a lot of the missile designs that were tested under Kim Jong-un were probably under development and evaluation in the Kim Jong-il era. Uh, Missile development programs don't just happen overnight. I think this is an important point because I think a lot of the credit goes to Kim Jong-un for many of these missile tests that we saw in 2017. There's probably evidence that the North Koreans were working on this under Kim Jong-il, but he just had no way of knowing that if these would actually end up paying off. So we see uh, Kim Jong-il really behave in ways that suggest that he does actually seek to quickly yield some deterrent benefits from his nuclear capabilities. And we hear the North Koreans frankly talk about nuclear deterrence and ways that I think are difficult for us to grok. I mean, especially in the West, Siegfried Hecker, the former director of Los Alamos National Laboratory in the United States, when he visited North Korea in November 2010, he shares this anecdote in his Senate testimony that one of the North Korean scientists who was giving him a tour of the uh, enrichment facility at Yongbyon when it was revealed that year, he hands him a piece of plutonium in, I believe, a jar and describes that piece of plutonium as evidence of the country's nuclear deterrent. And so you see this fascinating transformation, I think, from Kim Jong-il, who maybe is more concerned with trading away certain capabilities for short-term benefits. Of course, Kim Jong-il is also focused on building up North Korea's conventional military might, his famous policy of Songun, uh, which tragically uh, flung North Korea into a uh, terrible famine in the late 1990s. But by his late life, I think he is a lot more concerned with uh, meaningfully deterring the United States after having seen what happened in Iraq, and certainly also in Libya in 2010 and 2011. You know, you've broken a number of stories about North Korea's capability developments, you know, working with others to do that. And some of the things that stand out are about the scale of North Korea's uranium enrichment ambitions, for example. Much of North Korea's infrastructure is located at the Yongbyon nuclear complex. That's where the reactor you talked about earlier is cited. It's where the only uranium enrichment plant that has been visited by anybody from outside North Korea that we know about, at least, is located. And pretty much all of North Korea's other, you know, nuclear material production infrastructure, aside from, you know, mining and ore processing is kind of there, except for at least one facility that that you wrote about, which was, I mean, I think you hypothesized with colleagues was a, a uranium enrichment plant of some scale. And then, of course, that became an issue in the Hanoi summit talks that you mentioned, the scope of what North Korea was willing to put on the table, didn't it? Right. Not only is North Korea no longer the kind of non-proliferation problem that it used to be in the 1990s and the early 2000s, but just the scope of the nuclear complex in the country is just so much vaster than Yongbyon. I mean, it's understandable that, you know, we continue to focus on Yongbyon simply because the North Koreans, first of all, made declarations about their facilities there. We've had Americans, International Atomic Energy Agency officials visit those facilities, scrutinize them. It's simply where we have the most information. 
But yes, yeah, so I've been putting a lot of effort into trying to reveal parts of the covert North Korean, at least, nuclear fuel production program. And it's clear that there are at least two uh, covert enrichment sites outside of the Yongbyon complex. And, and Yongbyon, you know, it's not a single building. It's a, it's a large facility with... Like 20 square kilometers or something exactly, like that, 120 yeah. odd buildings. Uh, it's, it's 300 huge. plus uh, human structures, actually, yeah. I mean, most of those, you know, everything from a tool shed to a reactor included there. But, but if we look at uh, other facilities, the one that I scrutinized uh, and is discussed at length in the book is Kangsong. And Kangsong is... It's a curious facility. It's on the outskirts of Pyongyang, not actually far from Kim Il-sung's mythologized birthplace. It's a large facility. It's thought to have the same rough separative work capacity, separative work being a measure of uranium enrichment uh, efficiency as Yongbyon. And we have no evidence that outsiders not involved in setting that facility up have ever visited. And there's thought to be another covert facility for which we don't actually have a name or a location, which is thought to be the original pilot facility. Again, uh, Siegfried Hecker, when he visited Yongbyon and he saw the enrichment facility in a Senate testimony after returning from his trip, he shared his observation that this wasn't the North Koreans' first rodeo. So was that Kang Song? Was that the covert facility? Uh, we don't know. But what we do know is that this program has far outranged uh, what we have known through declarations. And I also talk about a few other facilities, uh, you know, related to nuclear warhead manufacturing. This used to be a problem that we didn't really think about because we were so focused on nonproliferation that, you know, if you deprive the North Koreans of fuel, they can't build bombs. But now they've just amassed such a large stockpile that, you know, even if today we miraculously succeeded at freezing the production of all fissile material, the North Koreans could convert existing stockpiles uh, into warheads, uh, unless we were to separately address that issue, which would open another can of worms at looking at facilities that are directly related to weaponization activities in the country. And uh, you know, this isn't even talking about their wide and, and ever-expanding range of missile bases around the country. Uh, under Kim Jong-un, one of the major themes, of course, has been missile testing. And one of the major themes that we've seen is the geographic dispersal of missile testing sites, uh, really an attempt by North Korea to make crystal clear that there isn't just a base or two that we can scrutinize and, and hope to shut down, that this is a, a program that's dispersed across nearly the entirety of the country's mountainous geography. It really is a problem that has expanded in, in so many ways in the last uh, 30 years. You talk in the book about the US having accepted vulnerability really to a couple of states, which is Russia and China, which I think I might dispute on, on the second one. I'm not sure the US has quite got round to the central decision-making sense, got round to the idea that Right now, it might have to accept vulnerability, and so missile defense is still a thing. But even harder to get your head around the idea that North Korea might be on that list. You know, the North Korea that 30 years, 40 years ago, you were judging was so backward that it, it would never be able to get this complex off the ground by itself. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, 46 years before North Korea showed us that it had an ICBM capable of ranging the U.S. homeland, China tested the DF-5's first ICBM design. And that was, you know, one year before Nixon visited China and normalized relations. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, the point is that in 46 years, planners and policymakers here in the United States really haven't had to think about nuclear deterrence with anything but two countries, the Soviet Union and eventually Russia and China. But with North Korea, it's interesting that, you know, we at one time, you know, we try to deal with with them as a non-proliferation problem, but at the same time, we posture to uh, take action if deterrence were to fail. We posture our missile defenses to then protect us if North Korea is indeed able to launch an ICBM under a scenario where deterrence has failed and a conflict is underway. But the point that I try to make, you know, the book ends with a short prescriptive section uh, with a few thoughts on policy implications 
is that not only do we have to live with North Korea, but but we don't have to do that in a way that implies you know, acceptance for legitimation. I mean, sometimes the acceptance debate, I think, can turn into a little bit of a red herring because, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the only legitimate nuclear weapon state status in the international system is the five nuclear weapon states under the NPT. And of course, uh, now we have a ban treaty, and I think the proponents of that treaty would even dispute that. But, you know, the fact being that North Korea... We have had American senior military officials publicly testify that the United States now conducts military planning for the Korean Peninsula under the assumption that nuclear weapons may be employed against U.S. bases, uh, U.S. uh, operating areas in South Korea and Japan. And if you're in North Korea, that to you is evidence that, you know, your adversary is beginning to think about the implications of this uneasy coexistence, uh, which is, I believe, the name that I used for the last chapter. And I don't call it peaceful coexistence because I don't think this is going to be peaceful or easy. It is going to be uneasy. It's going to be dangerous. Uh, I propose arms control, which frankly has never been successfully done at the degree of asymmetry we see between the United States and North Korea. In fact, the very idea of arms control with North Korea is incredibly distasteful to many Americans who see it as something only to be done with a country that has met the requirements for parity with the United States, which is only Russia, right? I mean, we we, we have a difficulty even talking about arms control with China, China's nuclear forces being considerably smaller by an order of magnitude, actually, than that of the United States or Russia. Uh, so there isn't an easy out here. You know, the least bad option is, I think, again, one that does motivate a lot of our options going ahead from here. I think the one thing we really need to avoid is this fixation that a comprehensive denuclearization agreement with North Korea, which was the objective of the 2018-2019 round of diplomacy for the United States, uh, we need to resist the temptation that that can be realistic or desirable in the short term. This is a complex nuclear program. It is a large program. It is sophisticated beyond anything I think we'd imagined um, probably a decade ago. And in recognizing that and recognizing that the dangers of inadvertent nuclear use, accidents, escalation really do manifest on and around the Korean peninsula today, we need to build confidence with the North Koreans. We need to pursue, if not arms control, uh, nuclear risk reduction, and at the same time work towards reducing the salience of nuclear weapons in future crises on and around the Korean peninsula. Ultimately, if you buy the theory that I put forward in the book for why the North Koreans possess nuclear weapons, which is ultimately due to an interest in pursuing regime security and mitigating the chronic insecurity that they felt for decades, partly as a result of their inability to truly trust any of their would-be patrons, China and the Soviet Union and Russia included, then the only way in which we might prompt the North Koreans to consider limitations or, or mutual limitations with the United States is in an environment where their security is less threatened by what the United States is doing in the region. And that ultimately does require us, I think, to make a few unilateral gestures. And and this is actually the focus of a lot of my work currently uh, in the aftermath of the book. Uh, of course, I don't try to bore readers with too many policy proposals, but I do think that there is a need to fundamentally rethink this problem. So I'm kind of interested in what you think might the Trump presidency and its influence on its approach to diplomacy was, I think the kindest way to put it would be deeply idiosyncratic. And one would assume a return to the kinds of processes, at least, that we had expected to see, you know, before Trump came into power. And so what, you know, what options does an incoming President Biden have to take some of the steps that you're, uh, you're suggesting? Right. I mean, so a lot of us in the think tank, scholarly communities, it's very easy to promote a wholesale uh, whole of government rethink of a problem like the North Korea problem. Um, But, you know, as we know, bureaucratic inertia uh, is incredibly powerful. And uh, it's not every day that a U.S. president authorizes a wholesale rethink of a problem. uh, Right. I mean, I think 
my sense looking at incoming Biden administration, which frankly has not said a tremendous amount about North Korea. And I should also be clear, I mean, amid the COVID-19 pandemic and intensifying great power competition with China and, and everything else, I don't think North Korea is going to be a top agenda item for the Biden administration. But I should also clarify that the North Koreans also know this, and they're very good at putting themselves on the top of the agenda for a U.S. president. A missile test or two making noises about potential uh, tactical nuclear weapons, I think, would do it. I think we saw evidence during the Democratic primaries that on the Democratic side of the aisle here in the United States, uh, people are beginning to talk about North Korea in the ways that folks like me and folks in the analytical community would prefer. It's not clear to me that Biden necessarily shares that uh, on a personal level. My expectation is that this administration is likely to pursue a fairly conventional North Korea policy, focusing on things like sanctions enforcement and deterrence and shoring up alliances. But I'm ready to be pleasantly surprised. The first six months or eight months of a Biden administration will include a policy review on many issues, uh, North Korea included. And ultimately, the determination that I'll be looking for is First, a determination that we're willing to talk to the North Koreans before the North Koreans have made a strategic determination publicly that they are ready to give up their nuclear deterrent, which I don't think is something that we'll frankly ever get. And second, I think the North Koreans will be looking for a determination that the United States is ready to really do diplomacy in a phased process, building confidence over a series of steps that might eventually take us to a point where we can start talking about the harder problems that do exist in this program, things like missiles, putting limits on warheads, the deployments of long-range missiles in North Korea, uh, really that process of arms control that I propose. Uh, but my baseline expectation is to uh, look forward to a fairly conventional uh, North Korea policy under Biden. We finish every show here by asking the guest about one source or text, a film, a book, or anything else that influenced your writing. So, Ankit, what's yours? Sure. So, uh I'm not a rocket scientist, but Kim Jong-un and the bomb contains a fair bit of basic explanations of how uh, how rockets and rocketry and propellant types uh, work. Uh, I think it's an important thing for readers to appreciate and understand. So uh, when I began writing the book, one of the books that I'd always wanted to read was uh, a book called Ignition by John Clark. This was a book published in 1972. Uh, John Clark was an American chemist uh, who was involved in the early uh, development of liquid rocket propellants here in the United States. And in 2018, right around when I was starting to write the initial uh, drafts of Kim Jong-un and the bomb, his book was actually reissued. So I picked it up and I read it and true to everything I'd been told about it by actually people who I'd been talking to about rockets and, and missile technology for a few years at the time. Uh, the book really lived up to expectations. It actually really inspired me to, you know, really put in the effort to try and explain these frankly very difficult concepts uh, in a way that might be accessible to a layperson and hopefully have them walk away from uh, the chapters where uh, these issues are discussed, uh, propellants and propellants type, uh, with an understanding of the challenges that really do undergird the development of these kinds of delivery systems for nuclear weapons. It might sound dry, but I, th I would really encourage uh, readers, if they have even a passing interest in the history of rocketry or space exploration, uh, to give this book a chance. It, it really does do a terrific job of making uh, rocket science quite fascinating. Personally, as a, as a scientist, I don't need any encouragement to find rocket science uh, fascinating, but I do agree that a book that describes it in an engaging way for a lay reader is, is few and far between. So I think that's a great recommendation. And I think your book fulfills very much the same mission in relation to North Korea. So looking forward to tracking your next steps, certainly. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Ankit Panda for taking part in this episode. You can buy Kim Jong-un and the Bomb now from Hearst Publishers' website. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers, Ankit at NKTPND, 
and me at TJA Plant on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. I'm Tom Plant, and thank you for listening.